Good morning and a very warm welcome to Hay. I'm delighted to introduce this event, which is part of the Cambridge University series and held in, associate, in association with Cambridge University. Our guest this morning is Professor Barbara Sahakian, who is a world-renowned researcher and professor of neuroscience at the University of Cambridge. I hope you'll join us at the bookshop after the session where she will be signing copies of her new book, Bad Moves. So please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Professor Sahakian. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm very excited and pleased to be here, and I'm glad to see so many of you have come out for the lecture. Now, I'm going to be talking about decision-making, and I'm going to be talking about hot and cold decision-making. And we, we sometimes don't even think about decision-making. Do you know why? Because we have to make so many decisions every day of our lives. So, you know, you've gotten up today. What am I going to have for breakfast? When am I going to go to the festival venue? Lots of decisions. Some of them can be very important. Am I going to apply for a new job or stick with my old job? Am I going to you know, uh, go to this university or that university? So we have many really important decisions that we make. But we also have some that are fairly almost automatic. We do them so easily, we don't even think about them. And I'm going to talk today about two different kinds of decisions that we make. And one of them is what's called cold decisions. And cold decisions are really ones that don't have an emotional component to them. And they don't involve conflicts with rewards and punishment. So that is the type of thing like, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? And you know, have I bought in all the ingredients? Or have I looked around at the different restaurants in the Hayon Wai area? And which, which one will we go to? And then we have hot decisions. Now, the hot decisions uh, are ones which produce an emotional response or may involve conflicts between rewards and punishment or risky behavior. So that's the type of thing where I often, when I'm talking to students, because this uh, really resonates with them, I say to them, it's the type of decision whereby, you know, here it is the night before your exam, and your mates come up and they say to you, we're all going down the pub. And by the way, that lady that you liked, that girl that you liked, is coming with us. You know, come on down to the pub with us. And there you are. It's the night before your exam, and you're torn. You know, I really, I really would love to you know, go out for the night and celebrate and meet this girl. It's my big opportunity. But on the other hand, shouldn't I be studying and getting a good night's sleep before my exam? So you're torn. There's a lot to gain by going out, but there's also a lot to risk. And that's the type of decision that uh, is a hot decision. And sometimes, you know, these can blend the hot and cold decisions. So I've made clear distinctions between them, but sometimes they've, they sort of blend a little bit more. So, for instance, frequently I'm up on the Anbrooks Hospital site where I work at the medical school and, and at the hospital site where I see patients. And I might have to drive down, say, to Downing College or the Downing site to give a talk. So I think, you know, making my cold decision, um, which route should I take down to the Downing site? And I think, oh, well, I'll go down Hills Road. That's the most direct route. I'll take this right straight down to Downing College. 
But then sometimes I might think, oh, it's rush hour. And Hills Road is totally blocked during rush hour. So maybe I'll go the Trumpington Road route instead. I'll take Trumpington Street down to the Downing College site. And so, you know, this is all very, you know, several hours before my lecture, whatever, and I'm thinking about which way will I go. It's all a cold decision. And then, of course, you know, you get interrupted or you have to see a patient or something happens, and you suddenly realize, oh, my goodness, I haven't left enough time to get down to this lecture. So then you think, oh, I'm on the Trumpington Road. Shall I get in the bus lane <laughs> and just go for it? And, of course, you know, you're torn because you know that's not the right thing to do and you know that it's not legal. And, uh, but then, on the other hand, you know, you don't want to turn up late for your lecture or have the, everybody disappear. So it becomes a hot decision. Now, our frontal lobes are incredibly important for our decision-making processes. And that's why, as humans, we are so good at making decisions, actually, relative to uh, lower species. So, for instance, you can see that the cat, like Fluffy, my cat, has barely any frontal lobe, in contrast to me, where I have quite a, quite a nice one. And as we go up the phylogenetic scale, you can see that the frontal lobe is, is getting bigger. And that helps us make these decisions. Frontal lobes are very important for decision making. So here you can see Fluffy. Fluffy can't make any decisions. So she's just going to sleep on it. But actually, interestingly, you can see this gorilla. Very complicated planning here and problem solving and making a decision about what to do. So this boy falls into the zoo enclosure and Binti Jua is able to carry this unconscious boy to an area where humans could rescue him whilst carrying her own baby on her back. So that's very complicated. So you can see the difference between these lower species and the higher ones. Well, I work with many patient groups that also have problems with frontal lobe control and also with their decision-making and their, and their actions, the actions that they carry out, the behaviors that they do. And in fact, I work with virtually all of the ones that are uh, put up here. So we frequently have patients with brain injury and they have a lot of problems with decision-making after they may have had an, an injury, which frequently affects the frontal lobes. And of course, frontal dementia starts in the frontal lobe area. Maybe some of you are less familiar with frontal uh, lobe dementia. So we all know about Alzheimer's disease. And that starts more in the back of the brain, sort of near the ears, behind the ear, basically. And that, of course, presents with problems in what we call episodic memory, you know, finding your car in a car park after you've parked it there for, and you've gone shopping for four hours and you come back to the multi-story car park. Now, where did I leave my car? Where is it here? That's episodic memory. But frontal dementia starts with changes in your personality and behavior. And what happens is that, you know, somebody who was... So one of my cases, for instance, a gentleman was perfectly... A respectable gentleman, and then uh, suddenly his wife finds him masturbating out in the back garden. So, you know, I mean, these are complete changes in personality, and that's a very dramatic one. Another example is one of my cases presented. He was, he was at a dinner party with his wife, and he was sitting uh, there at the table, and all of a sudden he looked at his neighbor's steak, and it was so much bigger than his steak. He just took his fork and jabbed it in and plopped it on his plate. So... That's, 
that's the type of way that that presents. But they have no problems with their episodic memory to begin with. It's perfect. So there's a very interesting difference between the way that patients present with those two, two different dementias. Both of them, of course, cause enormous uh, emotional problems for the patient and their families. So you know, it's, it's quite a serious thing. But they're very different in the way that they present. So um, we, ha we have to be aware of how we might be able to treat some of these problems that patients have and what we can do to help them. And some of these uh, treatments may be psychological or behavioral management, and some of them may include drug treatments. So I work a lot with cognitive enhancing drugs, as we'll be hearing about, or smart drugs, as they're known. Well, many uh, of our very respected musicians, artists, politicians have actually suffered with uh, such things as depression and mania. And here we have, uh, we can see Robert Schumann suffered with mania and depression. And you can see when he had depression, there's almost no ability to be creative or to actually um, create pieces of music. But you can see under, when he had hypomania, and hypomania is when there's just a bit of mania, it's not the really extreme severe form of mania, he was actually very productive. And if you try to think of yourself when, you know, those few days when you seem to get really well rested the night before, you've had a good breakfast, you just feel, you know, maybe you've even had some good news, so you're on the top of the world and you just feel like you can tuck into your work or you, whatever you're doing that day and you get so much done and you think at the end of the day, wow, that was amazing, I've got all this done. It, it feels a bit like that and, and you can see how productive somebody can be. But under conditions of severe mania, people uh, make very risky and dangerous decisions. So sometimes my patients, uh, one of my female patients will have completely maxed out a credit card or something like that, you know, just in one of these manics and spent far more than she had in terms of money. So it can be very deleterious uh, when, on a day-to-day -day basis when it's extreme. But other people have also suffered from depression. And as you, as, as you know, we try to, when we're in bad moods or when we're emotionally, we feel we're emotionally labile or slightly, you know, um, we're not quite sure how we feel about things and we're a bit upset, it's always good to wait and make a decision later. Don't make a decision at that time. Well, the interesting thing about these two kinds of decisions that we're making all the time is they're slightly different areas of our frontal cortex. So it's slightly different areas of the front bit of the brain. And uh, the cold decisions are made in dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, and the hot decisions are made in the orbital frontal cortex. And of course, these areas of the brain are networked with other areas of the brain, so it's not that straightforward. But these two areas of the brain are, are really important for decision making. And the orbital frontal cortex is just the bit right behind your eyes, the orbit of the eye, and that's why it's called orbital frontal cortex. And, and that part of the brain is really linked to what we call the emotional brain. And many of you will have heard about the emotional brain in important areas such as the amygdala. Well, Phineas Gage was the first well-documented case of change in personality and social and emotional behavior following damage to the orbital frontal cortex. And what happened with uh, Phineas was he was a very, again, a very well-respected 
man who worked for the railroad, and what he did was set explosions. And um, you know, I'm, I'm not a railroad worker, so I can't explain exactly what went on. But apparently, they used these tamping irons, and they set the fuses and all, and you'd uh, bang them down. But it was quite dangerous work. And this one went badly wrong, and the tamping iron went shooting up through his um, orbit there, as you can see. And after that time, he completely changed. I think he, he, his life just fell apart. He ended up you know, going off in the circus and living with some um, strange woman. So you know, it's just watch out. <laughs> it's a lesson for us all. So I also, besides working with patients, I'm also very interested in, in, in sort of superior uh, decision-making skills, and maybe how how can we look at what happens in the best instance to make decisions? So I've also looked at entrepreneurs and how they make decisions, and I've been very interested in their cold and unemotional decision-making. And in the context of entrepreneurs, that's when they have to sort of formulate a you know a business plan, or, or in the case of entrepreneurs, they more likely be looking at other people's business plans. So you might look at a whole set of different business plans, and you're looking for, you know, it's, it's a bit like uh, Alan Sugar or somebody like that. You know, have they got the market right? Have they, are they selling this widget for the right price? And do they know how to um, save on, on, on the, on the uh, equipment that they need to, to make this widget? So it's that type of thing. You're just analyzing in a cold way whether this person really has set out the business plan for whatever they plan to do. And then, of course, there's the hot emotional component. So maybe it's like Dragon's Den, and all these people come in with their plans for these widgets and other things that they want to do. And then you're the entrepreneur, and you have to say, well, let me ask you a few questions. And you start asking questions. And, and you think, suddenly, this person knows what they're talking about. I think I'll go with her. Or that person knows what he's talking about. I'm going to go with him. And it's a gut reaction. And these emotional hot decisions are often time limited. It's a bit like this lad going out uh, with his mates to the pub to meet this girl. You know, his friends aren't going to stand around waiting for him to make a list of, OK, now here's the pros, and now I'll make another list. Here's the cons. Um, you know, and they're standing there. OK, you know, have you made up your mind yet? No. I mean, he's got to decide right away and go. So these, well, we have usually quite a lot of time for these cold decisions. Um, we, usually these hot decisions are time limited. And so uh, we did this study, and fortunately in the Cambridge area, we're known as Silicon Fen. Not a very attractive name, I don't think, but <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't sound the same as Silicon Valley, but anyway. Um, and we have uh, some, quite a few entrepreneurs there, so we can do these studies that might be difficult to realize elsewhere. Well, we have to be able to measure cognition, and we have to be able to measure these two different types of cognition, the cold decision-making and the hot decision-making. And together with uh, Trevor Robbins, we've developed these tests, the CANTAB tests, and they run on a touch-sensitive screen. They can run on the iPad now. And you can actually objectively measure somebody's ability to make these cold and hot decisions. And here's our test of cold decision-making and planning. So what happens here is I say to you, OK, you're looking at the computer screen, the touch-sensitive screen. And you can see at the top there 
there's a display with a, a red ball, a green ball, and a yellow ball. And then you can see at the bottom display is not the same. And what I want you to do is to, in your, in your head, in your mind, figure out how many moves you have to make with these balls below to make that display look just like the one above. And when you're ready, tell me or touch, touch which number of moves you need to do that. So there you'd you know, obviously have to move the green ball out so you could get the red ball out and then move the green ball back and then the red ball back. So that would be four moves. So you'd touch that and you'd be successful. So that's how that works. And as I said, uh, if you put somebody in the scanner, which we can do up at Ann Brooks at the uh, Wilson Brain Imaging Center, you can see this person lying there touching the computer screen and making these decisions. And you can see that it activates this neural network in this nice yellow and red colors. And importantly, we can see the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. So that gives us two lines of evidence, really, uh, that we, we, we know that um, people, people use this part of the brain, the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, for making cold decisions. Now, what we did was we compared these entrepreneurs with high-level managers, but the entrepreneurs had had to start at least two companies, whereas the managers were not, had not started any companies. They were just actually managers. And what you can see here is that they're equally good on this cold decision-making task. And what we found in healthy people is we can actually improve performance on this cold decision-making task by giving them a smart drug, a drug called modafinil. Now, modafinil was originally uh, regulated in 1997 as provigil, and that was uh, regulated for uh, excessive daytime sleepiness or narcolepsy. And I frequently say when I'm lecturing about it, because uh, not many people uh, know somebody with narcolepsy, it's not that frequent, that if, if you fall asleep while I'm speaking, well, it's probably because you haven't had enough coffee or maybe it's getting a bit warm in here. But if I fall asleep while I'm, I'm speaking, that's narcolepsy. <laughs> so now we'll talk about hot decisions, hot decision-making tasks. So this is the hot decision-making task. And what happens is that these... Uh, boxes come on the screen at the top of the screen. And what I say to you is you can see that there's these blue boxes and a red box. And the computer's hidden a yellow square under one of these boxes. And you have to decide which box it's in. And then when you've decided, you can bet. You can bet on uh, whether it's in the red box or the blue boxes. And under this condition, of course, you'd be pretty quick to make a decision. You'd probably say, oh, well, there's nine blue boxes. I'm going to go for the blue. And you'd choose blue. And then you'd be pretty certain it's probably under one of those. So maybe you'd bet, you know, maybe all your points. And then you'd see that you won. But sometimes there'll be only six blue boxes and four red boxes. And sometimes it takes you a little bit longer to make a decision. But probably on balance, you'd still go for blue. But maybe this time you'd be a bit more conservative about how many points you were going to bet. Maybe you wouldn't bet so many points. And then, uh, so that's how that works. And what you can see here is when you put people in the scanner and you ask them to do that task, we get really nice activation in the orbital frontal cortex. Well, 
in deciding, is it under a blue box or is it under a red box, um, you, can find, you can see that uh, both groups are quite good at making this decision, both the managers and the entrepreneurs. So they're both fairly good at deciding. But when they bet, the entrepreneurs go crazy. <laughs> you can see that in the red bars, you can see our normative data. Those are just people like yourself who come in and do the test for us. And you can see that those of you out there in your 17 to 27-year-olds, pretty risky lot you are. But you know, when you get down to your when you get to your 50s and a bit higher, much more conservative, you know, much more conservative. Now these managers and entrepreneurs are in their 50s. So they should look like the group that says, you know, 41 to 52. And you can see that the managers, if anything, are probably more conservative than that group, which is interesting in its own right. But the entrepreneurs who are in their 50s look like the 17 to 27-year-olds. They're really betting away there. And what we see with some of our patient groups, what we see in depression is it takes them a really long time to make a decision. So frequently in, de in depression, if we're actually diagnosing it, we, uh, one of the symptoms that you might look for is indecision, an inability to make a decision. And you can see here, when you time how long it takes them to make a decision, it takes them a really long time. And if we look at the patients with mania, they're a bit slower to make decisions too, but the real change with them is that they make poor quality decisions. So where you saw that there were nine blue boxes and one red box, they might actually decide that it was under the one red box. So they actually have a poor quality of decision-making when they're in the manic state. And that's why when they're frequently making decisions, then they're very, they can be very risky and dangerous ones because they're not very good quality ones. They may know that they're unwell but not stick with their medication. They may go out shopping and max their credit cards under those circumstances. Well, I, I talked about modafinil, and uh, I just wanted to mention that we don't really understand completely how it acts in the brain. So we know that it affects uh, neurotransmitters, chemicals in the brain called dopamine and noradrenaline, but it also affects other ones called glutamate, and it affects some ones that are in, in important for arousal levels and, and for you know, um, sort of a neuroregulation of our arousal, such as orexin and histamine. And um, I should point out that methylphenidate, or Ritalin as you may know it, which is the most common treatment for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder um, in, in the UK if you're using a drug, and NICE has uh, approved it for the moderate to severe stages of ADHD. Obviously, if a, a child has a, um, just um, mild uh, ADHD, you treat with a psychological treatment cognitive behavioral treatment or some other treatment. But if they're very severe, you have to treat with a drug because otherwise they won't have a good school experience, won't be able to stay in school and study effectively. Well, you may not realize, but 50% or more of children with ADHD still have it as an adult. And in fact, up at Addenbrooke's Hospital with my colleague, Dr. Ulrich Muller, who's a psychiatrist, we run a clinic for adult ADHD. And again, the most common treatment would be Ritalin if, if a drug treatment's used. 
But we can also see that Ritalin helps to reduce this uh, risky behavior in kids with ADHD. So we see that they're not uh, performing in the same way as uh, children without ADHD. Uh, and we can treat that to some extent with Ritalin. And I mentioned patients with frontal lobe dementia. And you can see here that methylphenidate or Ritalin also reduces risky decision-making in patients with frontal lobe uh, problems, frontal lobe dementia. And you can see, in fact, that when the patients are actually on the drug, they're nearly about the same as the healthy um, volunteers, the controls. Well, we have a test of uh, cognitive flexibility and problem solving, and I won't go into this in great detail, but basically what you have to do is to, uh, you know, you have to start to solve a problem, and if it doesn't work, your solution, you have to quickly shift to a different way of solving the problem in order to get it right. And what we also found with the entrepreneurs is that they were incredibly good at that. They were incredibly cognitively flexible. So this high risky behavior was also associated with an advantage in terms of the problem-solving ability to think of a new way to solve a problem if the way that they were using didn't work. And that's incredibly important because, as you can see here, the managers were not that good at all at that. So once they, once they decided that was the answer to a problem, even if they got the feedback it was wrong, they found it difficult to switch and find a new solution. Well, we've also seen that modafinil is very good for improving cognitive flexibility in patients with schizophrenia. Now, the reason I work with smart drugs is because I'm trying to cognitively enhance patients with brain injury and, and psychiatric disorders such as Alzheimer's disease, schizophrenia, and so forth. And some of you may not realize that uh, while we have drugs like the neuroleptic drugs, the antipsychotic drugs, which treat the hallucinations and delusions that patients with schizophrenia experience. The real problem why they can't you know, go back to university if they've developed schizophrenia in university and dropped out, or go back to work once they develop schizophrenia and they find it hard to go back to work, is because they have debilitating cognitive problems. And it's the cognitive problems that prevent them rehabilitating. And that's so true of almost all the psychiatric disorders, and that's why I work on these drugs. So um, basically, what we've also seen, though, is intriguingly, not only does modafinil improve cognitive flexibility in these schizophrenic patients and virtually normalize them, but with Lord Aradazi at Imperial College, he's the head of surgery at Imperial College, we looked at sleep-deprived doctors. Because Lord Darcy found that his doctors, when they were doing operations and spending long periods of time and they had to work at night because frequently somebody comes in from a road traffic accident at night, you may have to operate late at night, they were drinking lots and lots of coffee. And anybody here will know that when you drink too much coffee, you start to get a lot of tremor and you start to get palpitations. So he was wondering, is there a better cognitive enhancing drug? Is there something that will keep the doctors awake and alert and focused on their operation um, better than using caffeine where you get this as a side effect? Because you don't really get tremor as a side effect with modafinil. And you can see here that it improves their cognitive flexibility in these doctors who were kept awake overnight, sleep deprived. 
So in the last bit of the talk, before I open it to questions, I'll just talk about this increasing lifestyle use of smart drugs by healthy people. And we know in America, um, it's been estimated that 16% or more, uh, some of the surveys that are published suggest that 20 to 25% of students are actually using these cognitive enhancing drugs. And frequently they use Ritalin or Adderall. Adderall is amphetamine salts. Uh, we don't use uh, Adderall over here much for ADHD, but they do in the United States. And of course, modafinil. But most of these ones that they've done on the college campuses will come up with Ritalin as, a, as one of the big, and they call it vitamin R or R ball over there sometimes. And um, you can see also that when the Varsity newspaper, which is the Cambridge newspaper, did an informal, informal student survey, they found that one in 10 of the students were using these drugs for studying purposes. Both in the USA and here in England, we found that um, uh, uh, there's a huge increase in uh, stimulant use, so that uh, it's virtually doubled over the past 10 years. And uh, so we also can see that, I, I mentioned that, you know, modafinil in the States is licensed for narcolepsy and also for uh, sleep disturbance due to shift work, because they found that modafinil actually reduces accidents in shift workers. But as I said to you, I mean, how many of you have actually met somebody with narcolepsy? Probably not very many people. It's not that, it's not that common. But you can see what the global market share is. And it's been estimated that about 90% of the use of modafinil is actually off-label. Well, why are healthy people using these drugs? I've been very interested in that. I'm interested in the neuroethical issues of these smart drugs, how they're going to change our society, what we have to be concerned about. And there seems to be um, a couple of reasons that are very important. One is the, the competitive edge. So lots of students are using them really just to get the best performance they can on an exam in a competitive situation. And in the uh, two, uh, 2008 report by the uh, Academy of Medical Sciences, they suggested that just a small 10% improvement in a memory score could lead to a higher A-level grade or degree class. So you can see that there's you know, a lot to play for here. So there's, there's one reason they use it, just to get the competitive edge. And, and obviously, uh, there's other reasons. I mean, some of my, uh, I've chatted with some colleagues I should say, in the other place in Oxford, who have actually used these drugs. And one of them uses it every fortnight just to get a good day's work in. And then um, the other reason that we've recently discovered, and we've heard report, I've heard informal reports of this, so people say, you know, I've had trouble getting down to studying for exams or writing this paper, or I've had trouble, you know, getting down to doing my tax forms. And... What you can see here is that people um, in this graph, you can see that we, what we did was we asked people after they did the tasks, like the ones I showed you, the cold and hot decision-making tasks, we asked them to rate how much they enjoyed it. And you can see it's, it's okay under placebo. You know, there's other things you might want to do more, but it's, it's fine. But under modafinil, they suddenly, it's very pleasurable, very enjoyable. So it increases task-related motivation. It increases the motivation while, for doing that particular task. 
And that, of course, could be very important for groups like the schizophrenic patients or people with brain injury where apathy or negative symptoms are a problem. So what are the, some of the potential harms or concerns in, in regard to using these drugs? Well, we now know that our brains are still in development, late into adolescence and even into early young adulthood. So our brains are still developing right up till you know, 19, 20, and even possibly up to 25 years of age. And I have to say that the, the male brain's developing slower, but you know, we kind of knew that, didn't we? <laughs> So what are these concerns? Well, I'm concerned about the side effects, long-term side effects in a healthy brain, especially with these young students taking these drugs. Because it's one thing if you've got, you know, moderate to severe attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and you can't focus or study or work at school, you need these drugs. Because if you don't get a good experience at school, a good school experience, you won't have a good prognosis for later in life. You know, you won't be able to achieve the things, the goals that you want later in life if you don't do well at school. So that's important to treat when people need a treatment. But if, you, if these healthy young students are taking it in order to, you know, do better at university, what are the effects of giving a chemical on the brain when your brain is in healthy, normal development? And we don't know that. We don't know what the effects are. So that's one of my concerns. And there are no long-term safety studies of these smart drugs in healthy people. So that is, a, that is a big concern. All the tests have been done in patient groups. Now, another thing people are worried about is that you could be coerced or even forced into taking cognitive enhancers. So, you know, will we all rush into a 24-7 society? A lot of students say to me, I don't want to take these smart drugs, but I see everybody in the library passing them around and taking them, and I feel pressure on me to take them. You know, so that's a concern as well. Will, we, will, will they be forced to take them, or will they feel pressure on themselves to take them? And we already know that, of course, in the military, they've been using these smart drugs for a long time. So we know that they're used in that context. But there may be some arenas like the military where we think, well, we need people to stay awake and alert and to you know, be vigilant for long periods of time where they otherwise might doze off. And it could be a danger to themselves or other, others. And that's one reason, of course, why it was marketed for um, you know, uh, shift workers so that there would be fewer accidents. And my other big concern is that people are buying these drugs off the internet. And that's a very, very dangerous way to buy prescription-only drugs. You really don't know what you're buying. You, do, you know, they're getting these things from Mumbai or China or whatever. And um, you don't even know whether it's a pure uh, compound that you're getting. It could be anything. So it's a very dangerous way to purchase prescription-only medications. And then some people think, well, we could be plagued by unwanted memories. Maybe these smart drugs will make us remember everything. And of course, forgetting for some of us is a very, uh, very therapeutic thing. I mean, you know, I think if I thought about the number of times I've said or done something where I think, uh-oh, I've put my foot in my mouth, or I wish I hadn't said that, or maybe something hadn't gone really well. I mean, fortunately, I don't remember those things. I don't ruminate on them. But what if we remembered them all the time? Maybe that wouldn't be beneficial for us. 
So I did this study, I did this uh, paper for Nature with uh, Sharon Marin Zamir, my postdoctoral fellow. And it was very interesting because I was over in Florida and I, um, I was tired and I was about to give a lecture like this and uh, I was sort of thought, oh, why did they put me in the late afternoon? I'm jet lagged. And of course, lots of people take these drugs for jet lag. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, oh, I feel so tired. And then my colleague said to me, would you like some of my modafinil? And I said, oh, you take modafinil? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I take it for jet lag all the time. And then I started asking around, and I was finding lots of people, lots of these academics were taking, um, you know, modafinil or Adderall or Ritalin and so forth. So, uh, you know, I snowballed it on and found out why. And they take it to, obviously, to counteract jet lag, but also some people take it just to really get some good work in there. And then Nature did their own poll and they got 1,400 respondents to their uh, online poll from 60 different countries. And intriguingly, one in five of those said that they were taking, had taken a smart drug. Now again, the, the issue of coercion came up, so I'll just, I'll just mention that, because they asked people, you know, should, you know, if somebody has a, a psychiatric disorder, um, you know, should they be given cognitive enhancing drugs? And as you can see, 96% of people, most people thought they should. But then they said, well, what about healthy children under the age of 16? Should they be given it? And 86% thought that children should not be given these drugs, healthy children. But then when they asked, um, would you feel pressure on yourself to give your child a, a cognitive enhancing drug if you knew that other children in school were taking them, 33% so that they would. So there's the uh, issue of coercion. And the neuroscientist survey uh, that was done came up with a similar one. This was uh, after I was on uh, Newsnight with Jeremy Paxman at about the same time they did a, a similar survey and that's what they found. So I always like to say, you know, there's other ways of boosting your brain power. And, you know, lots of people go for this quick and easy one. But actually, you know, methods like uh, education, learn, new learning, um, and I'm very much somebody who favors lifelong learning as an excellent uh, mechanism for boosting your brain power. And exercise is fantastic. It's good for your uh, body, it's good for your mood, and it's good for your brain. And both of these increase neurogenesis in the brain, so they're excellent things to do. There's lots of cognitive enhancing drugs in development, and I had a, uh, a symposium, uh, co-organized a symposium last year attached to the Society for Neuroscience to look at some of these new cognitive enhancing drugs coming up for patient use because we need uh, good treatments for episodic memory problems. As you know, Alzheimer's is, disease is a very big concern, and we need better treatments. I actually worked on the proof-of-concept studies for the cholinesterase inhibitor drugs. Those are the drugs such as aricetinepazil, which are now in use. But they really just deal with attention and concentration, and they help a bit. We really need good drugs for the memory problems, and we really need neuroprotective agents so we can actually stop the disease process, not just treat the symptoms, but stop the underlying disease process. And then pharmacogenomics. Many of you will hear that um, it's the discipline be behind how genes influence the body's response to drugs, which is important for enhancing the efficacy of treatments. So if we get um, good pharmacogenomics, we can, for each of you in the audience, we will have your genes and we can say, this is the best drug for you to 
take. It will treat your symptoms, and you'll have little or no side effects with this drug. So it's an important new development. And we looked at it with one of my students a little bit, pharmacogenomics, because we were interested in uh, people who were raving and, and taking ecstasy at the weekends. They tended to get what they call midweek lows, and some of them actually got seriously depressed. So we knew that um, um, ecstasy affects your brain's serotonin, a chemical in the brain. It lowers it. We know that um, you know, we need our serotonin for normal emotional regulation, and the drugs which treat depression boost serotonin in the brain. So we simply said, you know, if you're taking ecstasy chronically and you're lowering your brain's serotonin, will you make yourself depressed? And what we found was that some people were, did become depressed, but those were the ones who had the SS allele of the serotonin transporter gene. So it was the interaction of their genetics with the ecstasy that was producing the depression. And then the other side of that coin is we will have better treatments that will actually interact with our genetics and produce a better effect. So these are some neuroethical questions that I can leave you with, and that's should we enhance cognition, and what so, in, if so, and what people should we do it? Military, shift workers to make sure they don't have accidents. What about these bus drivers who drive children home at night? There's been a couple of accidents where they've fallen asleep. Should we be you know, having them use it? Um, and what, how will that change society? What are the issues to do with coercion and so forth, and fairness, and... You know, if these drugs are available, will they be, will we have to pay for them? And then will we have bigger disparity in society? So I think it's very important that we think about these things in advance. And so I hope you'll all come to my signing, get my book, it's great. <laughs> and I've also put up some um, other things. I think it's very important. I'm really pleased you came to hear about this. It's such an important issue. It's important to know what you think about it and discuss it. And um, I've, I, if you're interested more in the more technical thing about how human enhancement might affect our workplace, you can go online and get this Royal, uh, Royal Society, Royal Academy of Medical Sciences, the Joint, uh, Joint Academies booklet. You can see the website there. And um, you know, in, in Cambridge, we always have a science festival. So I hope some of you will come along to that. It's in March, always in March. Um, and that's it. So thank you very much for your attention. And I'll take some questions. Thank you. Thank you. We've got one over here and one over there. Thank you. You haven't mentioned the question of chemical or emotional dependency with these drugs. Yeah. What's the situation now? Yeah. So uh, the, uh, any of the uh, classic stimulant drugs, like Ritalin, methylphenidate, um, and Adderall, which are amphetamine salts, they all have a risk of dependency. And although the risk, um, I, I must explain that when children take um, methylphenidate, it's usually in a slow-release preparation. Um, and Nora Volkow, who's director of the National Institute um, of Drug Addiction, um, has shown that uh, basically it's the, it's the fast peak effect that causes the rush, which usually is linked to addiction. So this very general slow increase in the drug and then leveling off is less likely to do it.
But still, with any stimulant drug, there is the, there is the potential for addiction. Now, modafinil, so far, has not been shown to have any addictive properties. So that's why it's a real challenge to this lifestyle use. Uh, thank you very much. Um, your research on decision-making amongst entrepreneurs, for instance, like, well, it doesn't tell us anything apart from how they are in front of a, uh, a computer screen. So is there any real-life uh, uh, research you've done on that? Like, for instance, entrepreneurs make decisions every day, and they probably are 20 times faster than managers. That's because <laughs> managers are waiting for their pensions, uh, and entrepreneurs don't have them. But also soldiers in battle. Yeah. Real life, like that's totally meaningless from what I gather, like that kind of research doesn't tell us anything, like it's like a computer game for kids. Like. Yeah, um, it, it's very interesting because uh, I was contacted by somebody who works on extreme sports and they thought that uh, in some sense what they'd read about the entrepreneurial paper that I had in Nature was not dissimilar to what they find in extreme s sports, it's very fast ability to make quite risky decisions. Um, and we're, we're following up this research to look also about uh, maybe more in the situation that you're talking about, where we're trying to find out how you make decisions when you haven't got all the pieces of information that you need, because many decisions are made under conditions of ambiguity, and you still have to come to a, a, a decision. But the thing with, with the way that we do it is to really understand the link between the brain mechanisms and the behavior. And we have to have the behavior under reasonably controlled um, situations. Because the trouble with some other methodologies, say surveys, is that people know what you're asking and can very easily give you the answer that you're expecting. Um, whereas on these tests, you know, you can't, you can't really do that. So they're objective rather than subjective, and that's, that's very important. Uh, we got one here, one over there, one here. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Hi, um, I'm doing my, oh, yeah. I'm doing my MSc in occupational psychology at the moment, so I'm finding it quite interesting, the links with all the, the jobs and things. But I was wondering, if now when I leave and I get into um, coaching and training, which is what I want to do, if I come across this, is it generally, do people turn a blind eye? Is it generally thought that it's okay to do, or are people a bit, you know, um, wary of it? What, what's the, the general consensus of people? Well, uh, you know, I mean, let's just take a, let's just take a, a hand uh, raising exercise here. So if these drugs were found to be safe, I told you there's no long-term studies as yet, but if they were found to be safe, how many people think that they're very happy that other people should use these drugs if they want to use these drugs? Raise your hand. Okay, now, how many people would use them themselves if they were totally safe and, uh, you know, they felt like they... So does that help you? <laughs> okay. This one up there. And... How, how does sleep um, fit into everything that you've been I'm really studying? glad you asked me that. I'm really glad you asked me that. Because um, a lot of people that I know 
they just take uh, they just take the uh, smart drug for when they're um, got, trying to get over jet lag. Um, but students, when they take it, they frequently, you know, they'll take Ritalin or something, and then when it's, they think it's starting to wear off, they'll take it again, and then they'll take it again, and it disrupts the sleep, and it's a very, obviously not a very safe practice, that. But it also disrupts their sleep. So that's really counterproductive, because we consolidate our memories during our sleep. So if you're trying to study for an exam and remember information, it's obviously much better practice to get started well in advance uh, and, and get your sleep so that you can consolidate your memories. And most of us um, will have had experiences of jet lag, or maybe we've just been anxious, stress affects our sleep. And, you know, so most of us are not functioning at the best that we can. But when we do get a good night's sleep, we realize that we feel much better. It affects your mood, but it also affects your cognition. So you saw how the doctors were on sleep deprivation. And uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a very good state. So, yeah, sleep's an incredibly important thing. But that's one other reason, just bringing that up, is that, you know, we think of ourselves as maybe we're functioning at our best level. Well... Unfortunately, only those in the audience uh, who are in the range of 20, their 20s are functioning at their best cognitive level. The, re the rest of us are slowly eroding uh, cognitively. So, you know, it's it's interesting question. Are we just, you know, if under conditions of stress, under conditions of sleeplessness, under conditions where we're, you know, aging, are we just bringing ourselves back up to a level that maybe we were when we were in our... 20s. Oh, we've got so many questions. I'll take one here and then. Um, I wanted to come back to the ethics, actually, and um, this whole ethical debate of how you bring ethics into a scientific debate. And um, if we ask the audience the same question about sports and drugs, mm. um, it'd be very interesting to see whether actually everybody mm. would put their hands up and say, yes, we all think everybody should take safe Drugs and okay, sport. okay, we'll do that. So the first, the first question is, in a competitive sports situation, would, how many people feel that, you know, you should just say, oh, if you want to take drugs, take them, and we shouldn't bother to be taking people's urine all the time and their hair samples and things to see if they've been taking different drugs. How many people think, just, just let them take drugs if they want to take drugs? Hands up. Okay, thank you. And now, uh, how many people, we saw how many people might take the drug if it was safe. So how many people feel that if it's an exam situation and people are trying to do their A-levels and get into university, how many people think you should just say, well, if they're going to take drugs, let them take drugs and don't worry about the fact they're taking smart drugs. Now, this is a competitive situation. How many feel that people should be allowed to do that if they want to? That's interesting. It seems to be more than for sport. <laughs> so that's a very interesting. Somebody who answered that way, uh, if you're brave enough, could you stand up and tell us your thinking? Because it'd just be interesting. And whether you also felt the same about sport. Uh, there was a gentleman, I think, up the back somewhere who was, no, I won't point the finger at anybody, just if you feel like it. OK, there's, there's somebody. Um, it, it was just a practical answer, really, because with sport, I think the problem is that you'll just get to a position where you have people who are very pumped up or turn, turn from being 
um, normal human beings into these super people, and I don't think that's the idea of sport. Whereas if, you, if you're all at university, I really don't see how people can control. If these drugs are available, students will take them. If you think you're going to get a better grade, I would have taken them. Um, and you're not going to be able to test every single student. So I think in practice, it would, it would happen, and it doesn't turn people into monsters in perhaps the way it would do in sport. Okay, it. so it's really more practical, a practical consideration. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, we've got a question over here and one here, a couple over there. Oh, we got one back here, okay. Sir? Yep. Hi. Um, I'm a psychologist working with addictions and various things, including ADHD, actually. And one of the things that I think I observe is that people often rush to medication when there are issues, sort of psychological, family dynamic type of issues, very pressured parenting, that kind of thing. And also, um, one of the key tools that I use with people is, is mindful awareness training. And I believe that there's quite a lot of evidence that mindful awareness training can enhance, physically enhance, the structure of the medial prefrontal cortex, which deals with, amongst other things, impulse control, which is one of the elements of ADHD. So I'm wondering how relevant you think, for example, mindfulness training as opposed to taking drugs would be to addressing mm. impulse control. Mm. So I work a lot on depression. And um, one thing uh, that w I've sort of talked a lot about is that frequently when people get really ill, seriously ill with depression, as a cognitive uh, therapist, uh, clinical psychologist, when I see them, um, I'll say to them, so I'll give you one example of a patient. So I came in to see this elderly gentleman who I was asked to see for cognitive behavioral therapy for his depression. And I said, uh, you know, I introduced myself. I'm uh, Professor Sahaki. I'm here to talk to you about, you know, your, how you're feeling and why you're here in the hospital today. Um, and he said, it's my shoes, doctor. It's my shoes. They're all shabby. And I said, well, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm really here to talk about how you're feeling. Um, what's been going wrong for you recently and why you're here in the hospital. And he was, you know, shuffling around and agitated and saying, it's my shoes, doctor, it's my shoes, they're all shabby. So, you know, I tried again a few times, different ways to get a conversation going. And I couldn't, I couldn't get a conversation going because he was so agitated and so ill. So I said to him, I'll come back and see you in a few weeks because I know that you're having uh, some drug treatment for your uh, depression and I'll come back and see you when that's uh, had some effect and we'll talk again. And in the meantime, the nurses who were very caring people had taken him out shoe shopping and he had his new shoes and everything but, and, you know, they'd taken him out right away but they didn't, they, the shoes didn't do it for him actually. <laughs> um, but when I came back, you know, he wasn't agitated, he was relaxed. It had, put, it had returned his, neuro, his chemicals in the brain back to an, a nice uh, neuro, you know, regulatory state. 
and I could then engage with him about what the problem was. And he told me that his, he felt his family would be better off if he was dead. Well, I knew his family were very caring about him, and, they, and so we then were able to work together. I worked with him, I worked with the family, and we were able to um, work together with the cognitive behavioral treatments. So they also exert top-down cognitive control, and there's a better there's a better history behind them in terms of their efficacy. So I tend to work in that direction. But your general point is quite correct. For controlling of the emotions and for controlling of behavior, many of these techniques work very well. And uh, we need to use whatever we can, I feel, to make sure patients have a good quality of life, are able to function in their daily life at work, university, school, home, wherever, and uh, have a great sense of well-being. So those things are all very important. So my time is just about up, so I just want to thank you again and tell you I'll be doing a book signing, and if anybody wants to come along and just ask questions, that's fine too. So thanks again. Thank you.